This is Dr. Bonnie Baxter. I am director of Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College, and I'm also a professor of biology. I am Dr. Robert Gillis. I'm the director of the Utah Climate Center. I'm a professor at Utah State University. And this is the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Please listen carefully. 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 Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. You can visit us at connorsforum.org. Make sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you're there. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. We've got a great show for you today. A few weeks ago, if you remember, in the Connors newsletter, we ran an article on the Great Salt Lake and how it's drying up. Well, today we've got two experts on our show to discuss what's happening there and why it's important. Now, real quick, before we get there, I want to play you a really interesting clip from the Bulwark podcast from Friday, August 26th. Now, as you know, one of the main primary concerns of this show is the health of our democracy. And I think this clip is important to share as we have conversations about how to strengthen American democracy. So on the show, host Charlie Sykes and his guest, Tim Miller, They were discussing President Biden's loan cancellation plan. Now, I'm sure many of you support this plan. I'm sure many of you don't support this plan. And there's probably others of you that are sort of in the middle. Uh, This podcast, we are not here to convince you that you should like a policy or should not like a policy. We're here to talk about the pros and cons in their complexity. And for all the positives of this plan, I think it's really important for us to think really critically about some of the drawbacks. Now, there's a variety of drawbacks we could talk about. One problem is, of course, that it does nothing to fix the underlying problem of the enormous cost of a college degree in the U.S. today. But another problem, and the one that Sykes and Miller are discussing in this clip, is how this debt cancellation came to be. They make a really important point that I think supporters of this action especially need to hear, which is, We really need to be careful which non-democratic actions we excuse in favor of something that we support, because in doing so, we open the door for people to use the same non-democratic methods to undermine our democracy in the future, right? Just because it's being done in service of something that we like doesn't mean we should excuse it, because in allowing stuff like that to happen on your own side you then allow us to slip further away from democracy. Here's a snippet of that conversation. I want to add one other negative thing before I get to the the elements of it that I I think that maybe the Democrats can try to work with now that it's happened. Uh, But I, I think this is important, and I want people that are supporters of this of good faith to listen to this, because this matters. The legal part of this, Okay, I I didn't go to Larry Tribe's class. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. But like, just, it's preposterous on its face that the President of the United States can buy fiat, just pick a number out of the air and determine this is the amount of number that we are going to forgive loans because we're in 
an emergency. Like we're not an emergency. Like there's no reasonable definition of emergency that defines the situation that we're in right now. Maybe we're in a student loan crisis. I want to get to that in a second. But but this is not an acute emergency. This pandemic is the excuse, I guess, that they're using. They can't even really defend it. Nancy Pelosi didn't say, said it wasn't legal. Jen Psaki said it wasn't legal. Like it isn't legal. And so if we're going to be part of a Joe Biden said I can't do this. Joe Biden himself right. said, I don't have the power to do that without congressional action. He said that. Yeah. So if we're going to be well, yeah, pro-democracy, pro-constitutional democracy mm. coalition, okay, we can't just say, oh, well, we can do a little soft autocratic action from the executive as long as he's nice and as long as the, as long as the thing that he's doing is helpful. Even if you think it's helpful and you think it's good and you disagree with some of our political analysis, you know, just because they did it doesn't mean we can do it, right? Like th- there has to be some limits that responsible people put on, uh, you know, what an executive branch is allowed to do, and and, and I really don't want the you know the next Republican president to to build a wall or fund some child separation internment camps like and and be able to say well we're in an emergency and I can just do this and it's the same justification okay. that Joe Biden used and and obviously they might do it anyway blah 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 yeah. but but this but is, I'm sorry it's just like you have to at least even if you like this you have to at least admit that this is not the way to do it okay so I agree with you. However, I think we've already crossed that line. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're 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 in this spiral where people actually like if, if I want it, if uh, if it's something I favor, then then yes, absolutely, presidential fiat. Um, you know, using some sort of um, you know, s- stretching the emergency powers as far as they possibly can to get what I want. So you have a president who now, and again, for people who who think that we're being unfair here. I think Joe Biden himself was very, very skeptical. Nancy Pelosi said very clearly, we need congressional action. And when we talk about this in terms of democracy, what you just said is not irrelevant. This is really, really important because if we get to a point where any president of either party can say, because I declare this emergency, I am going to unilaterally declare this policy, spend trillions of dollars or ban this or legalize this, then we have become, you know, some form of maybe it's a soft autocracy, maybe it's a harder autocracy, but it is not a constitutional republic in which Congress has the power of the purse strings and Congress makes these, you know, we, we actually change the laws. So be careful what you wish for. But I think we've crossed this. I just think that, you know, you saw this with Obama, you saw this with Trump, you're seeing it with Biden. The next time around, you know, there will be the, you know, use this as a precedent and the cycle will continue. And then everybody will switch teams. Like, no, I, we want the president to rule, you know, by by fiat. No, we, that's terrible. The president rules by fiat. And the only distinction is if the other guy's in the White House, you take one position when your guy's in the White House. You, you know, I mean, this is where we're at now. Now, again, the point of this podcast is not to convince anybody about this policy. There are positive aspects to it. There are negative aspects to it. And I think that reasonable people on both sides of this debate can consider and discuss the pros and cons in good faith. I hope you appreciate us bringing the issues to you in all of their complexity and not just based upon the talking points of one side or another. 
All right, well, with that, let's get to the topic of today's show, the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake. Joining us today is Bonnie Baxter. She's director of the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College and Robert Gillis, director of the Utah Climate Center. Dr. Baxter and Dr. Gillis, welcome to the program. Why don't we begin by talking about what makes the Great Salt Lake so special and why it's so important in the region? So Great Salt Lake is an incredible ecosystem. It's probably the most important body of water on the Pacific Flyway for birds. We have 10 million migrating birds that come here every year to eat what is basically a food chain of two invertebrates, brine shrimp and brine flies, which have part of their life cycle in the lake. Um, And they provide food for these 10 million birds. So as an ecosystem, it's terribly important um, in itself, but it also provides a lot of ecosystem services, including our our economy in Utah and, um, and holding down dust, for example, is something that we're paying attention to lately. So it, it's a really important body of water. Um, It's enormous. It's 80 by 50 miles. And it's also um, right next door to a metropolitan center, which makes it kind of unique. All right. So uh, the satellite photos are rather breathtaking. Uh, the size of the lake is very different than it was just a few decades ago. <clears throat> so when did people start noticing that something was going wrong here? Uh, if you actually look at the data, it was about the mid-80s that uh, the process that you described started. And that's when, uh, I guess, people started to notice what was going on. And it's been a consistent uh, trend downwards since then. Uh, this, this lake is really shallow. So when water evaporates, we lose uh, elevation in the lake rather quickly because it's not a deep lake. Um, so that's one of the reasons the lake itself is prone to um, shrinking so rapidly in the face of high evaporation rates and water diversions, et cetera. So that that's kind of a critical, a critical point to get across. So uh, could you talk a bit about the consequences? Obviously, one of them is uh, the reliance of their local ecosystem on this lake, but there's a variety of others. So you can talk about any consequences you want, but uh, what what are the implications of this lake going away? The, it's really actually very tragic. Um, we we have about 8,000 jobs that exist with respect to Great Salt Lake for the brine shrimp industry and uh, the mineral extraction industry that makes everything from fertilizer to road salt and, um, and now coming up lithium, also magnesium, which is used in steel and aluminum cans. So there's a lot of industry on the lake. Uh, so there is an economic consequence in addition, um, storms coming in over this lake cause this lake effect snow that Utah is pretty darn famous for, the greatest snow on earth, they like to claim. So it, that the lake is also providing money in the form of the ski industry. That's tourism dollars. So that that's a point I want to make up front is that I, I might be studying the ecosystem as a scientist, but I'm, I'm not... Um, I, I think we shouldn't hide the fact that it's also an economic resource for the state of Utah. Um, and so that's that's a big thing. The, the other thing that we're really worried about as this lake dries up, the loss of the ecosystem, the loss of the economy, but also 
the dust that will be left behind because we humans have done this experiment before. There are other basins that have dried up. Owens Lake is a close example that is one-tenth the size. Um, also the Aral Sea, also Lake Ermia, also the Salton Sea. I could go on um, around the world. We've done this experiment before and we know exactly what happens. We're going to experience um, particulate matter blowing into this metropolitan center like we've never seen before. And there are heavy metals in this lake bed because a terminal lake holds on to everything it's ever encountered, except water. Water is the only thing that leaves. So that's that's my worldview. I, I think it's multifaceted what we will lose. And I think it will happen very quickly. Yeah, from the climate perspective, uh, you know, Bonnie was talking about the storms. Uh, with climate change, the storms are actually changing in the kind of precipitation that they provide, as well as their intensity. So there are actually less storms coming in, but they're much more intense. So if you think about then the wind associated with the storms whipping up the the dust uh, and uh, toxins in the lake bed, then that sort of scenario is just a compounding scenario. I thought I saw somewhere arsenic and I thought, you know, somebody who's not a scientist, I'm a social scientist, so I'm not really a scientist. Uh, So, you know, somebody who sees arsenic uh, arsenic clouds, possibly like you have to look at your weather app up oh, arsenic clouds today. That sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. If you're compromised either cardiovascular or respiratory wise, uh, one has to remember that here in the winter in Utah, we get very strong subsidence inversions. Now your, your uh, listeners may not know what that is, but it just means normally temperature decreases with altitude but in the winter, when you get a high-pressure system over the area, then temperature increases with altitude, and that traps uh, all the pollutants that are emitted from cars and industry, etc. So that, along with the dust that has perhaps arsenic and other uh, minerals in it, just exacerbates the problem for those who are suffering from cardiovascular or respiratory issues. All right. Well, let's talk about causes. So uh, as you read different articles on this, and I don't mean academic articles, you two are the experts. Uh, so you'll be able to tell me, Lawrence, you're dead wrong. And here's why. Uh, but as I'm reading um, the the media articles on this, I am seeing different things emphasized differently depending upon who I'm reading, right? So some are emphasizing more climate, some more drought and population change. So talk to us a bit about the causes and what you see as the relative importance of each. Essentially, it's supply and demand right? You've got a finite uh, supply, okay? And you've got an increasing demand. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, we have an influx of uh, people coming into the state that's uh, proposed to double by in 20 years, okay? Um, And then, of course, you've got climate change on top of that, so climate is changing and the hydroclimate of the area is changing, but it's really the, the fact that we're taking more water or we're diverting more water from the three rivers that feed the lake. Uh, and then climate change is going to be on top of that with its changing perspective. And I, it is compounding. It, it is like these water diversions that have happened over the last century you know, I, I I see it as we've set ourselves up to 
be in a perilous situation because we don't have the rebound. Like we can't handle this level of drought and warming temperatures. Whereas the natural system, a natural, you know, a terminal lake system, um, the elevation should fluctuate um, because there's no outlet to the ocean. So it should have high water years and low water years, and it, it should be able to handle low water years. Um, but now we've gotten to a situation where even the aquifers aren't recharging. So we don't get a rebound when we do get a good snowpack. Um, in facing climate change and this predicted mega, mega drought in the Southwest, I, I think it's, it's just a little horrifying to realize the situation we've gotten ourselves in, um, you know, diverting water up to now. So uh, in talking to both of you on all of these questions, um, one of the things that strikes me again and again and again is that I'm, I'm not there. Those of us listening to this podcast are not there. And so we can read about it, but it's very difficult for us to understand what the different constituencies are saying, what the sort of consensus is when you read about this. So you both were um, cited in this New York, big New York Times article, which got a lot of play. Um, and Robert was telling me off the air that uh, it, it significantly increased uh, the amount of traffic going to his uh, email inbox. But um, uh, so from the outside looking in, you see all these different constituencies, Republicans and Democrats and farmers and, you know, uh, um, government officials who seem concerned. So what's the level of consensus about um, the fact that it we're at crisis level there, number one, among these constituencies? And number two, how much consensus is there about what's to be done to fix it? Before we talk about what the fixes are, what's the sort of consensus there's a crisis and what the fixes should be? That's a somewhat difficult question to answer in many ways. But the legislature did pass a $40 million uh, fund for more study and some other things, and maybe Body knows more about that. Uh, I'm unclear as to exactly what that, how that money is going to be used. I'm not sure, and this is probably controversial, uh, what more study will help. <laughs> The problem is actually, in my mind, terribly simple. We're taking more water away from the lake. We've got greater evaporation over the lake because of climate change. Uh, and that's the crux of the argument as far as I'm concerned. I, I am an optimist. And even as an optimist, in 2019, I co-wrote the obituary for Great Salt Lake um, that was published in a local magazine. And... Um, that's getting a lot of airplay right now. In fact, um, we've been performing it live as a eulogy, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, I, uh, so I might, I might surprise people saying I'm, I'm an optimist. But one of the things that I'm optimistic... <laughs> that sounds surprising. This lead up, this lead up <laughs> yeah, makes yeah, it very right, surprising. <laughs> right. Um, but one of the things I'm optimistic about um, because I sit on a lot of the state advisory committees and I go to all those meetings, one of the things I'm really optimistic about is how seriously the state agencies are taking this problem. And the legislature, um, it, this is the Utah legislature, okay? It's not known for being very progressive. These guys have taken this to heart. Um, there were at least seven bills that were passed in the last legislative session that have to do with water. And one of them is taking 
$40 million of this infrastructure package. So it's federal money. The state legislature doesn't quite mention that when they talk about it. <laughs> so it's easy to vote on using $40 million when you don't have to come up with a way to raise the funds. It, it came from the infrastructure package. But um, the speaker introduced something really interesting, um, which was to create this $40 million trust. And it's like making an endowment for the lake. And so it can fund solutions for the lake, but also as an endowment, it's it serves to collect more funds. So we can collect money from private donors to that pot and make it grow. Um, and just recently, National Audubon and Nature Conservancy of Utah were given um, the uh, sort of oversight trustee power for that trust. So you have a Republican speaker of the House, you have a unanimous vote on the floor in the Utah State House, and then you have two nonprofits um, that have been chosen to be trustees of those funds. Now, to Robert's point, you know, what more studies do we need to do to know that there's a problem? And, and I think that's true. And, and that's why I think as they look at that pot of money, they're probably going to be looking at funding solutions rather than funding investigations in, into what is the problem. The, the other thing that's really interesting to me are the, the bills that support agriculture in terms of making them part of the solution instead of pointing fingers at agriculture and say, you guys are using all the water up upstream from Bear River. I think it's really important to put this in the hands of the users. That secondary water that they're using for irrigation was never even measured. And if they were to allow more water to flow down to the lake, they would lose their water rights. And so there are two pieces of legislation that address that um, and sort of put it in the hands of farmers to know how much water they're using and to have the right to lease that water to the state without losing their water rights. And, and those have to circumvent some federal water laws. They're still in the books from homesteading times. Um, so that those were really innovative solutions in the legislature. I don't know how much water it will result. It's hard to calculate because it's based on individual decision making, which is more um, it's more your game, Lawrence, the social science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to put a number on it. I mean, agriculture uses about 80 percent of our water resources in the state. So they're a big player. And so what Bonnie has just said is. Uh, hopefully a significant move towards uh, allowing more water to uh, go downstream, so to speak. So uh, you guys have talked about a few of these uh, solutions in terms of uh, legislation. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, I think I read somewhere, if not the fastest, certainly one of the fastest growing areas in the entire country. So uh, population growth means more money for a whole host of things. And so limiting that, not very popular. Um, we could uh, change the amount of water use or change how we use it. I've heard even things like um, increase the, the price of water. So I hear that water is rather cheap in your area, something like that. So uh, any other solutions that I've missed? Well, conservation is a big part of the initiatives that are going on in the state at the moment. So there's a, you know, programs like uh, Slow the Flow and things like that. Um, of course, something that can be done is along the lines of what's happening in Nevada, 
and that is to remove green lawns and xeriscape, right? Because the lawns do require huge amounts of water. And then if you think about doubling your population and doubling the lawns, uh, that's not a good solution. <laughs> so I don't know if that wasn't part of the legislative session i'm pretty sure but uh, there is a lot of there are a lot of initiatives around the state that are trying to encourage families and people to move to a xeriscape type landscape and minimize the amount of grass i was going to say this water ethic in utah is is really interesting um as white people moved into this area in the late 19th century um, I, I think that it, you know, water was this important commodity and they were very proud of um, one of the taglines you hear a lot. We made the desert bloom like that's something that gets said all the time in Utah. Um, we, we were able to take water and be smart about it and irrigate and make the desert bloom. And so for Salt Lake City to be this place with grass and trees is part of the mantra that's been going on. Um, culturally for a long time here in Utah. Um, and there hasn't been this embracing of the fact that we have an arid climate, but partly we've been sheltered from that because we live next door to the Wasatch Mountains. So we have this luscious snowpack that brings water. Um, and, you know, Phoenix doesn't have that, for example. Albuquerque doesn't and has a little more, a little of that, but nothing like this, right? So these other cities in the West, when they raise the price of water, um, they see water usage go down. And that's something, again, that goes to sociology. Like that just happens. And Utah has been hesitant to raise the price of water. In fact, we do something really odd in the state of Utah. We hide the cost of water and our property taxes, so that when you get your water bill, you don't actually see what you're paying for water. And I think being more transparent about water cost and being more transparent about the cost of using too much water um, is going to be really important for shifting that water ethic in Utah. And I think it's important to note from a climate perspective is that the snowpack is declining. We're getting a shift from snow to rain we're actually getting more precipitation in northern Utah, but more of it is coming as rain. So the snowpack, which has a very distinctive hydroclimate connection to the artesian wells and to the Great Salt Lake, is on a downward trend. And if only scientists had been able to predict that, Robert. <laughs> We're getting there. Do a victory lap real quick before I uh, ask the next question. <laughs> no, Yay! The world's not, ending. Yeah, this is not something you want to be right about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, your, your point's well taken. I mean, um, obviously, yes, I'm a sociologist, but you don't need to be a sociologist to know that when I see the water bill come in here in Pennsylvania and it's high, I say, "Gosh, I need to water my lawn less this next three months." Right? So, uh, yeah, water prices sure would make a difference. Uh, sort of zooming out a bit, um, you know, I read that somewhere that uh, the, the demand for water in the Salt Lake City area could exceed supply by 2040. Um, you know, forever I had been reading in the climate literature. And again, I'm reading like, you know, meta analyses. I'm not reading the real fine grain stuff you guys are looking at. But I had seen, you know, the, the coming water wars, you know, tensions around water being something that 
people had predicted for a long time. And, and now we're really kind of seeing it. Um, th- this seems to be like uh, one of the areas that is going to cause a lot of tension, a lot of constituencies to uh, be pitted against each other. But but again, this this battle over the future of water. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, I mean, there, <laughs> there's yes. not much more to say. <laughs> there's this quote that is attributed to Mark Twain, although I think no one knows if he actually said it with um, about the West, which is that whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Um, and I think it's I, I think when you have a limited resource like that and, and the history of water in the West is is really interesting. Um when John Wesley Powell was out here surveying, um, one of the things he said is that there is a finite capacity to this water in the West. And um, that kind of went unheard. So from the get go, we knew that. And in fact, um, the homesteading laws that are on the books, which were frankly very racist because they gave white settlers water rights above people who had been using that water um, prior to that time. Um, so the native people lost water um, because they defined beneficial use as something white people were doing and not what native people were doing. So uh, that legal term beneficial use is still on the books. Um, and I, I think it really shouldn't be. But we had to redefine beneficial use in the state of Utah in order to make this law to give money to sovereign lands and make that defined as a beneficial use legally. So I think there's some really intricate things that a biologist really can't <laughs> be smart about, but water lawyers can. And I think a lot of the work of solutions is going to come through water policy and water law and less from a molecular biologist like me. As you look around, as you sort of survey the landscape, whether you're talking about the U.S. or even uh, further afield, um, there are other examples of maybe not this exact case, but uh, other examples. So I've seen stories on the Colorado River, for instance, facing uh, similar declines. You mean you, you mentioned Owens Lake virtually disappearing, right? So what are some other sort of hot spots around the U.S. or around the world that are following this similar pattern? I was going to say Lake Mead is kind of interesting. Um, the Hoover you mean besides Dam. the mobster bodies they're finding? Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of <laughs> jealous. I kind of want some good mystery stories about Great Salt Lake. So, <laughs> wait, did I say that on the that. air? I'm going to clip that. That's good. I'm going to put that in the intro. <laughs> I'm a little jealous about Lake Mead. Some interesting, interesting things they're finding. Um, we just get arsenic and mercury and selenium, but they get dead bodies. It's kind yeah, you don't get of, um, zoot suits in, uh, in, yeah. in uh, barrels. Yeah. I'm feeling my very cynical, sarcastic UK roots coming out when I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> when I see, I mean, I, I see the Colorado River as an example, right? Because again, as you said, uh, Robert, I mean, that's really about supply and demand, right? So um, the, the, the river should flow to the ocean and it's not going to because you're stopping it from doing that, right? It is very simple that way. And I think this... These studies that uh, have been published since 2016 on the mega drought in the Southwest, um, really, really interesting work on paleo hydro studies going back to the last time we saw this level of drought was 1200 years ago, which is, you know, when the ancient Puebloans left the Southwest. 
And uh, I shouldn't say they left the Southwest, but they left the cliff dwellings. So when I first moved to Utah 25 years ago, I used to go to these ancient sites and the rangers would always say, and we don't know why they left. And now we do know why they left. Um, And we're seeing exactly the same thing. So the same predictors are in force now. um, And that's that's where this mega drought comes from, from studying um, these high... really multifaceted from tree rings to soil hydration studies over time. Um, so that that's going to affect the whole Southwest. And I think we do have a little bit of buffer because of our next door mountains. Um, but that mega drought is real and California has been feeling it for some time. And one of the things we haven't mentioned is forest fires. The drier we are, um, so Robert mentioned that we live with it, you know, these inversions and pollution in the wintertime here in this ring of mountains, this valley in the middle of the ring of mountains. Um, it has just the landscape to, for these temperature inversions to form and hold pollution underneath. And it's kind of frightening. So you couple that with air quality problems from forest fires. Like in the West, we understand air quality issues. And I think that's one of the reasons this, uh, issue of dust and heavy metals be- becoming airborne from the lake resonates with people in Utah. Um, I give a lot of public lectures. And when I talk to people about the stromatolites that I study on the bottom of the lake dying, they're not really as interested as they are <laughs> when you tell them they're going to breathe they're going to breathe bad air. They understand that, right? So I think it's something the whole Southwest is seeing. And these fires are only going to get worse. Um, and, and the population is going to suffer because water is a really tight resource out here. It it feels a bit, you know, as as you watch again, I'm not in the West, I'm in Pennsylvania, but, um, it it feels a bit as you watch all these wildfires and, and you watch these, uh, you know, like you said, Lake Mead and, um, the Great Salt Lake and the Colorado river and all these different, um, climate related issues that have been occurring across the U S and across the world, it, it feels a bit like the frog boiling in water, right? Like it feels a bit like, you know, 50 years from now or a hundred years from now, we'll look back and say, Oh yeah, they were in the midst of a serious crisis. Um, but in the moment you don't realize like, this is a signal of something. This is that canary in the coal mine, right? That, uh, we should be making some very serious changes right now. So how optimistic are you? Let's, let's think locally first about the Great Salt Lake. And then let's think more globally about the greater issue of climate change. How optimistic are you that you're going to save the lake? And how optimistic are you that we're going to get serious and stay at two degrees? You know, that's really a question for a couple of years from now to see what the legislators do, right? Because as Bonnie was saying, it's it's all encompassed within a legal framework as it stands at the moment. As far as climate is concerned, we know more definitively what's happening there, right? We know what's happening with the forcing from the Western Pacific, etc. Um, I'm not too happy with the concept of a mega drought at this point in time. Um, I'm thinking enhanced drought for sure, but uh, because the situation is not quite the same as it was in, say, the 1200s. Uh, because we have different climate forcing now with more CO2, uh, whereas back then it was more of a natural variability, and we don't fully understand what caused that at that time, at least as far as I know. 
I was, I think one of the things I wanted to mention, I, I'm on a state salinity advisory committee. And yesterday we met and talked about an um, intervention that happened last week that we've been working towards. So one of the things we've been doing with the ecosystem is trying to figure out what is the minimum elevation that can support the ecosystem. And it's largely related on how salty the water is because the, the algae and the cyanobacteria that feed the brine shrimp and the brine fly larvae um, require a certain salinity and it's way saltier than the ocean. So the ocean is 3.5%. This south arm that is really the dynamic ecosystem is, is um, at about 17% right now, which is a restrictive salinity. Yeah. 17.1 they well, said dangerous. yesterday. So it, it yeah. said it yeah. that that 17%, I mean, it has been since I've been here fluctuating between nine and 13. And the last couple of years, it's been 15 and then 16. And um, in my lab, those species of algae are not surviving at 17%. So how long can they stay at that restrictive salinity and be okay? Um, I don't know. Can the brine shrimp shift to eating other things? I don't know. Will it will it change their reproductive cycle? Will it will it shift the the biology of these creatures and how will that impact the birds? And so we're sitting right at that precipice of a restrictive salinity right now. And yesterday we were talking about this innovation where we're using the railroad causeway across the lake that sequesters the more hypersaline north arm away from uh, the freshwater input. And now we're building a berm to keep that water there and to allow some of the south arm water to go there so we can move some salt. So just the idea that you can apply engineering to the system to maybe help make the ecosystem survive as it shrinks. Like we're at that point where we're having to intervene with the system in order to keep it healthy with engineering. And I, I think that's a little shocking. Dr. Bonnie Baxter, Dr. Robert Gillis, thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Fabulous to be here. Thank you for listening. Now, you'll remember that earlier in our conversation, Dr. Baxter talked about this obituary that she wrote for the Great Salt Lake that had gotten some attention and she had actually read it publicly. Well, we have an audio recording here of a former student of hers named Chloe, who studied at Westminster College. She did research on the lake and the watershed while she was there. And she's now a graduate student at Oregon State University. We have a recording that Chloe did reading the obituary. And uh, both Chloe and Dr. Baxter have given us permission to play that for you on the show. So here's this clip of Chloe reading this obituary for the Great Salt Lake by Dr. Bonnie Baxter. Great Salt Lake experienced her final glimmering sunset today, succumbing to a long struggle with chronic diversions exacerbated by climate change. She was born 13,000 years ago to Lake Bonneville, who occupied the basin previously, and the Holocene Epoch, who melted and evaporated water. Her dusty remains will be scattered across the Salt Lake Valley for millennia. We will be constantly reminded of her passing by our air quality monitors. She was preceded in death by her cousin, Owens Lake, who lived in California. She was survived by Mono Lake, also of California, whose family took legal action using the public trust doctrine to revive her when she was on life support. During her life, Great Salt Lake underwent many surgeries and amputations. 
she suffered blockages in her circulatory system, most significantly a transverse incision by a rail causeway, which restricted her flow of her fluids. Although it was common for her to expand and shrink her girth, the last 50 years of her life were especially tumultuous in this regard. When she was at her largest in the 1980s, the state of Utah insisted that she diet with intervention to protect her human neighbors from flooding. Ultimately, the thirst of rapidly growing population upstream, which prevented her from refilling, caused a severe reduction in her size. As water was withheld, she began wasting away. Projects such as an inland port, development of Bear River, the lake's largest tributary, relocating the state prison, and construction of non-essential landfills put much strain on her. In her frail state, she was exposed to the plant planet's warming temperatures and local drought conditions. The combination of terminal dehydration and high fever caused her eventual demise. Great Salt Lake had a very salty personality and was known to her neighbors as stinky and buggy, but she had the best memory, holding on to every mineral, pollutant, and sediment that she ever encountered. Noted for hosting many around her table, she fed anyone who migrated by, Visitors could count on her being accosted by her biting, her pet biting gnats in the spring, but would always leave her home with the most unique tre treasures. She loved people, especially those native inhabitants of the basin who built caves and traded salt, but also those humans who built funky buildings and partied on her beaches. A nonconformist, Great Salt Lake was infamous for wearing a palette of intriguing colors, not the usual blue of other lakes. Her wardrobe was steeped in lemonade pink, photosynthetic green, and sandy taupe. Her salty shorelines were ruffled and rugged, and it was her northern red waters and ethereal characteristic that drew ro artist Robert Smithson to, to Utah to embellish her with his spiral jetty. She demonstrated her care and concern for people by floating them gently in her arms and never allowing them to sink. However, when disturbed, her short temper could quickly whip the heavy waters into frothy waves that would capsize a boat and would leave foam blanketing the shoreline. Although not a skier, Great Salt Lake was an avid donor to the ski industry, contributing her lake effect to what has become known as the greatest snow on earth. During summer months, she enjoyed paddleboarding, canoeing, and sailing. She combined her love of chemistry and aesthetic to create many rusted, rusted pieces of art. She served as a model for many artists over the years who echo echoed her uncommon beauty in their work. She was committed to volunteer for her local environment, spending her time absorbed, absorbing heavy metals and balancing nutrients. Always an avid bird watcher, Great Salt Lake earned a PhD in ornithology observing 338 species over thousands of years. She was an entrepreneur, supporting an array of businesses from brine shrimp harvesting to salt extraction. As a hobbyist, she collected old boats, railroad, wooden railroad trestles, and an occasional airplane. Great Salt Lake was an award-winning ecosystem. In fact, she was lauded with as a site of hemispheric importance for birds. For centuries, she hosted one of the largest breeding colonies of white pelicans in the world. For decades, she hosted the annual Great Salt Lake Bird Festival, the Great Salt Lake Open Water Swim, and, and Antelope Island Spider Festival. She was a noted activist for diversity, understanding that life of all sorts has equal values in the world. Once standing in a protest, she challenged the Utah Department of Environmental Quality to develop water quality standards made difficult by her high salt content, leading to equity for salt lakes everywhere. <laughs> for this work and that for her inclusion of Native people in her history, she is often referred to as Notorious GSL. 
There was an action to prevent the great the death of Great Salt Lake, but it was too little, too late. As she was gasping her dying breath, she influenced the Utah House to pass a concurrent resolution which would acknowledge her condition of desiccation. Quote, now, therefore, be it resolved that the legislature of U- the state of Utah, the governor concurring therein, recognize the critical importance of ensuring adequate water flows to Great Salt Lake and its wetlands to maintain a healthy and suitable lake system. End quote. While this recognized a need for policy and engagement by stakeholders, the resolution did not find any specific remedies. She supported Utah's economy for many years, but we did not adequately fund her health care in time. Had we done so, we may not be mourning her death today. Utah regrets the loss of this unique piece of its identity, as does the lake's namesake, Salt Lake City. The city is still struggling with 7,706 employment casualties when the brine shrimp and salt extraction companies literally dried up. Also, one million tourists no longer visit Utah since the closure of the state and federal lands surrounding Great Salt Lake. With her death, Utahns now pay more for their water treatment and ski season is limited to just a few weeks. They are also suffering additional health costs from dust exposure and spiritual loss of this cultural hub. She will be missed by the 85,000 American white pelicans who nested and fed around the lake, the 5 million eared grebes that fed on the abundant brine shrimp in her salty waters, and the 10 million avian colleagues who loved Great Salt Lake for millennia. The great loss is the opportunity for folks to connect, find common ground, and work together to save her. Her friends and family would like to express thanks to the many people who pleaded for her action on behalf of Great Salt Lake. Our gratitude is extended to state and federal agencies, community members, advocacy groups, and the many research scientists and students who strived to understand her and spread the words about her importance. In lieu of flowers, conserve water, and call your legislatures to advocate for smart water laws. In keeping with her salty personality, she requested that admirers play the song Another One Bites the Dust at her memorial. Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.